Well, we are in the perfect season for producing the fruit of the Spirit. We're in the perfect season for producing the fruit of the Spirit. You may or may not know I grew up on a farm. It's, uh, it's not common knowledge. That's a bit of a joke because it's often talked about. And one of the misconceptions about farming and agriculture is you've got to have the richest soil to produce the best of things. It's not necessarily true. If you're a fine wool producer, you actually don't want uh, rich, fertile soils all the time. You don't want lush growth all the time. You actually want there to be a time, a season, just tweaked with the dials enough working so that the wool is produced fine and it doesn't blow out. At least that's what I know about wool. There are other industries, of course, other things you grow that you don't necessarily want it to be that, well, it's always easy for those plants. You want plants to be able to put roots down deep, to grow well in hard soil, in hard times. There are lots of things like that for plants, agriculture, but also for life. We are in the perfect season for producing the fruit of the Spirit. There is no better season than the hard seasons we're going through right now to produce this fruit. It would be easy in an easy time, perhaps 2019 or before, for us to undertake a series in the fruit of the Spirit, but now is the perfect time because we need this fruit produced in our lives. And the hard season that we're in, the difficulties that we face, help us produce that fruit. We've talked a lot about love lately. We were talking about love in First Thessalonians. We were talking about love before that, throughout the book of Job, First Peter. We've talked a lot about love lately. So the question is, why do we need this topic today again? Surely something more topical to today's issues is what we need. Surely we could talk about government or church state, issues of pandemic, issues of all sorts of things, surely there's something more topical than love today. Well, friends, I spend most of my time not thinking about agriculture anymore, but thinking about God and what he has for us and what he has for us in his word, and I am convinced that there is no more topical time than to talk about love right now, today. There is no more important time to be talking about the fruit of the Spirit starting with love today. What we're going to undertake in this series for nine weeks is a systematic theology. Now, there are different ways of undertaking theology. Theology is the, is the study of the delighting God. Theos, God, ology. We're going to be looking at God... And systematic theology, different to perhaps uh, biblical theology, biblical theology is what we're mostly used to. We, we look in the scriptures, we look at a book, we preach through it, and we see how God's revealing salvation is unfolded there. Systematic theology is taking all of the scriptures and looking at all of the scriptures on a topic. And we do that on occasion, usually between series, between book series. Now, for some people who are a bit afraid of systematic theology, because, well, is there a danger in this? We've got all the scriptures on a topic, we've only got half an hour, is it going to cover? 
be not afraid. In fact, you're in a Presbyterian church where we exist by systematic theology. The Westminster Confession is 33 chapters of systematic theology. It's, it's what the Bible says on a whole bunch of different topics. But even more than that, even before creeds and confessions existed, the Bible actually has in it systematic theology. 1 Corinthians 15, for example, an outline, a creed of the gospel is a systematic theology. It is bringing together the whole Bible in a few verses and saying this is what the Bible says about resurrection. So all we're doing is doing what the Bible does. We're bringing the scriptures together in one moment and saying what does the Bible say about the fruit of the Spirit, namely today, love. And as we do that, we are going to be sequentially letting God set the agenda. One of the fears about systematic theology is this. Well, in a book, I can tell you that God is setting the agenda because when we preach it, when Russ preaches it, we go from 1 Thessalonians 4, the first part, to then the second part, to 1 Thessalonians 5, the first part, the second part. We, we move through a book, God sets the agenda. But fear not, friends. The fruit of the Spirit given to us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, God is still setting the agenda because it's his fruit, it's his word. He says, this is where it starts, this is where it ends. There are nine fruits given to us here. Now, yes, it is a singular fruit. It's nine aspects of Christian fruit. As we heard in the kids' talk, being a Christian is produced Christian fruit. But those nine aspects, those nine fruits, starting with love, we're going to see God set the agenda from now until Christmas. And for those of you who do like a preview for Christmas, it's slightly different this year. We're going to be looking at God with us over a few, few uh, events, namely even possibly a Christmas Eve carols by candlelight service with candles, real live candles, in here. That's coming. But for now, love. I don't need to tell you that love is the favourite topic of most pop culture songs. Love is everywhere. Love is all around. All you need is love. We, we get it. You don't need to be sing anything about it. It's just, it's there. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, which I'll read right now, when we come to this passage... This passage for us is going to be the base for our time together. We'll, we'll actually bounce to other places in Scripture, but it's going to be the base for us to, to see what kind of love we're talking about when we talk about love and the way God has given us love. And I want you to notice, this written to a dysfunctional and divisive church, we live in a dysfunctional and divisive time. We have never been more divided as a society and a world as we are now. And potentially, such division could wreck apart our church. There is suspicion. People talking to each other with suspicion. Messaging about other people with suspicion. We need this, friends. Hear God's voice. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Uh, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul writes this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, to an impressive church. The context, we've actually preached through all of 1 Corinthians a few years ago. I think it was 2015. And we saw there that it's an impressive church. It has its big church, lots of people, lots of gifts, lots of logistics and infrastructure, all the things you could want in a church. It's an impressive church, but it's also easily impressed. And the context of this is, Paul gives these words. He speaks about a church like this. So we see in the first four verses, he speaks about gifts and service to a church who just celebrate gifts and service, like they elevate them, they make these the most important things. And he says this, in chapter 12, verse 31, just before we go into chapter 13, you'll see it there in your Bibles open in front of you, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will still show you a more excellent way. And if you're talking to a Corinthian, now you've got their attention. Oh, tell us what the excellent way is. We want the way of excellence. That's what we're after. He says, here's the excellent way. And then he kicks off with, if I speak in the tongues of men, now you've got our attention, and of angels, oh yes, but haven't love, you might as well grab that symbol over there and smash it in your ear. Now we're listening. I want you to notice in the first four verses, there's two kind of sections. The first section, so verses really one to two deal with gifts, and the second section, verse three, uh, it deals with service. So firstly, the gifts. We see Paul says uh, the value of having gifts without love. What's the value? What is the value of having gifts without love? Paul says it equals zero. Gifts without love, he says, and he actually uses the phrase twice, just so we get it. It's nothing. Gifts without love has no value. You are nothing. You could be the most talented musician in the congregation, but if you don't love people, it's nothing. It's not even partial. It's not something. It's like, well, you know, look, they're a talented musician, but we can get away with the fact of how they treat people. We, look, yes, they, they message people and talk about people and gossip about people, but we can, we can overlook that because, wow, they're a talented musician. Wow, they're a great Bible reader. Wow, they do such a good job in providing food. Whatever it is, we can overlook that because of their gifts. And Paul says, no. You haven't got love. You've got nothing. And then verse 3 moves on to talking about service. 
You can serve in all the right ways, do all the right things, but without love, again, that repeated phrase, I am nothing, I gain nothing. Friends, love is not a bonus of Christianity. It is the basis of Christianity. You can have a church where the right people attend the right Bible study groups. We could all have all the men at a men's breakfast and all the women at a brunch, second Saturday of the month. We could have all the right doctrine. We could make a stand on all the right topical issues. We make a stand here and you shall hear about it. We could give up ourselves to be burned by the authorities, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego style, Daniel chapter 3, or perhaps Latimer, Ridley and Cranmer of the Reformers. We could even do that in a public spectacle. Light me up. But if I have not love, it's worth zero. Friends, it is awful to be a world-famous evangelist. And we've seen this of late, world-famous evangelist, to, to, to build a whole ministry that's worth millions of dollars and your name is on it and, and you have a headquarters and you have a massive worldwide staff team and then it come out in the wash later that you abused people and didn't love them. That's, that's awful, but here's what's something more awful. You could be a world-famous evangelist and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? And you could be world-famous and yet the Lord says to you, I don't know who you are. I never knew you. That's awful. Friends, we could be a church that says, oh, we're a refuge for people. We're better than the other churches. Come to us. We could be a church that says that, dare we not. But yet, if there is slander, gossip, backbiting, if we relate in rudeness, we're just cranky and condescending all the time, boasting, tearing down, impatient, anger, insecurity, accusatory, self-pity, pointing out everyone else's faults and failings, then we have nothing. I've noticed the way people are relating this season. I've noticed a little trend that disturbs me a little bit. We disagree, I get that. It's okay to disagree, it's sometimes healthy, but when it turns to division, and here's what people I've, I notice they do, I've noticed that people listen to a different view held to them, and then they laugh. Um, and by the way, they're not laughing because of a shared joy of humour. That's a different kind of laugh, isn't it? The deep down laugh of we're sharing fun here together is different than laughing at someone, ha ha ha, laughing at them. I've seen this. It's not laughing at ourselves because we don't take ourselves too seriously. It's laughing at someone for holding opinions. And it's passive aggressive and it's tearing people down. I've seen it on Facebook. Someone expresses a thought on Facebook and someone uses the laugh icon, not because it's funny, because it wasn't meant to be, because they're laughing at them. That has no value. You can call yourself a Christian 
And if you laugh at someone to attack them, there's no value. We boast in our rightness and we tear others down in how wrong they are. And when they fail to meet our expectations, when people fail to meet our expectations, well, we say goodbye. We make demands upon people. In Australian culture, many men spend their relational value pulling each other down almost for sport. When we could be Romans 12, tenning it. There's a few mottos, verses of scripture I would love to be burned into the brain of our blokes, our men, for our men's ministry. How about this one, Romans 12, 10. Instead of tearing each other down with our jokes, we could say this, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another. Not in how much better I am or how much funnier I am, wittier I am. Outdo one another, what? In showing honour. Can you imagine a men's ministry where we outdid one another in showing honour? Where instead of outdoing one another in any other way, we just looked at each other and said, you know what I love about Jack is this. And try and stop me telling you how much I think he is to be honoured among us. That would set a men's ministry alight. Instead of jokes at other people's expense. Love is the basis of Christianity. Christ is countercultural to the world. And a culture of Christ in me and a culture of Christ in our church will move us away from the way of the world. See, the world prioritizes this. The world says you matter if you've got gifts, talents, skill sets. You matter if you can contribute something. But Christ says you matter regardless of what you can contribute. And now you get to love. The church is to be of love, to hold together in good times and especially in testing times. The church is to be love at all times, even in disagreeing times. And in a world of outrage culture, this is counterculture. It offers a better culture, a healthy culture, a compelling culture of love, because love is, and here's the second thing we see, verses 4 to 7, and here's the heart of this passage. Love is, and there's a list of things love is. Love is patient, friends. When often we are not. I get how hard it is to be patient. We're going to look at patience later in this series. It's hard to be patient. We have to keep running services of 20. Masks and all the things we'd... I get it. I'm impatient too. I want it to be over too. Love is patient though, Russ. When often, Russ, you are not patient. Love is kind. We make being unkind a social media spectator sport. Love does not envy. We do. Love does not boast. We've made it our pastime. Love does not insist on its own way. Do you insist on your own way? Love is not irritable or resentful. Friends, we are in the season where resentment crouches at our door. 
and we keep a list of things of how others have wronged us and then we play it on shuffle and replay throughout the day in our heads, in our hearts. And we just grow in resentment, like a darkness that takes over our soul. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We are tempted to twist the truth, to make ourselves look better and make others look bad. We could have a disagreement with someone, and I've noticed this, we disagree with someone, and then we tell others how much and how awful they've done something to us. And then you, you actually get to talk with people and realise, someone's not telling the truth here. Verse 7, love bears all things. Our temptation is not to bear with one another anymore. Romans 12 tells us to do so. Love believes all things. Our temptation is to be suspicious of one another. We look at one another with suspicious, what are your motives? Rather than, I believe that you would actually want the best for me and I want the best for you. Love hopes all things. We are tempted to sneer at hope with cynicism now. Where we could hope the best for others? No. And love endures all things. We leave at the slightest of things. And then by that, we give the boot in as we go, telling people how terrible they are, things that we remember from three years ago and whatever it is, and we leave relationships. We write off people way too fast. Goodness, imagine if God wrote us off that fast. We'd be goners. Wouldn't we? Yet here we are with something so important to see. If we miss this, we miss everything about love. And here it is. Paul, the Apostle Paul, doesn't write this hypocritically with his finger saying, I just wish you were more loving. I want you to notice this. This is extraordinary in this passage. He doesn't say, I just wish you were more patient. I wish you were more this. He doesn't do that, in fact. He doesn't give us a list of imperatives here. He gives us a list of indicative verbs. And here's what it is. Love is this. Love is this. Love is this. Why does that matter? What difference does it make? If you read 1 Corinthians 13 and you replace the word love with Jesus, it makes all the difference. It makes all the sense of the passage. This is... This is Amazing. Watch this. Verse 4. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. And Jesus does not insist on his own way. Now you can say, well, he's God. Yes, but remember Philippians 2. He who came to earth humbled himself even to death on a cross. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Look at the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, is he going, Oh, you're making me so pained up here, you bunch of idiots. Is that what Jesus says? He says, does he say, I'm so glad to be leaving this world soon. I've had enough. It's finished. Is that what he says? No, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then when he says it is finished, he's saying, I have finished saving them. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. And Jesus endures all things. 
There is profound theological beauty in this, friends. We know from 1 John 4, uh, verses 8 and 16, that John writes, God is what? Fill in the blank. God is love. God is love. And in a world of friction, here is a fact for our hearts. In a world of fiction, God loves by giving himself up. And that's amazing grace. God is love. Jesus is love. And if Jesus is love, and we know Jesus went to the cross and is risen again, never to die again, is ascended as king and returned to judge the living and the dead, if Jesus lasts forever, love lasts forever. If that's the kind of love that God's talking about, not any other love, an erotic love or the love just of mates, but actually that kind of love, a cross-shaped, cruciform love, then that love is risen again, it cannot die, it will last forever. Love lasts, which is where we finish here. Love never ends, verse 8. The kind of love that is not of Christ, the kind of love that is only of the world, does not hold the same promise for you, does it? Think of it. The kind of love that promises to last forever, sometimes we sit there just personally with our doubts. Every second pop culture song and reference says love will last forever. From the Beatles to the Muse, to I'm just thinking the classic big band anthem songs. I'm so tempted to sing that line from the Muse song at the top of my voice right now. Maybe it come for ISO factor. Love will last forever. It's an anthem of our world, isn't it? But the promises don't hold true often because it doesn't happen. Yet, if Christ is love, that kind of love, that self-sacrificial love that puts others' interests above our own, Christ-shaped, cruciform love, it lasts forever. Death will not defeat it, friends. Spiritual gifts and talents will not last forever. Noble human acts of history won't last forever, but this will, when the perfect comes, when Christ comes, for Christ is the personification of perfection himself. He is the personification of love itself, and producing the fruit of the spirit of love is to therefore be like Jesus, verse 11, who matures us. Look at verse 11. It's one of the little trustworthy sayings, isn't it? It's like, you and me, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. That's true. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I gave up childish ways. I matured to become more like Christ. Love builds a church in maturity. And outsiders of Christ will be welcomed by such a church. They will see a loving community that is a compelling community. As we saw in our Thessalonian series, it's a community of Christ that lasts forever. Because look at verse 13. So now faith, hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Which means the question is for us right now, the most important question is right now, do you abide in this love? Have you received the love of God. 
Jesus says to us in John 15, or we read from earlier, he, he says that he chooses us and appoints us so that we'll go and bear fruit and that such fruit would abide. Producing the fruit of the Spirit in our life, starting with love, is Jesus' plan and purpose for us to be like him. But you know this by experience, don't you? On the pathway to be like Jesus is potholed with potential pitfalls and failings. Because since the fall, we're all fallen and we all fail, like all the time. And we all fail at love, don't we? Like all the time. Friends, it's not until you recognise that it's not until you recognise it's not just others who are unloving. Often we do that, don't we? Play that game. Well, they've not loved me. They're unloving to me. Until you recognise it's not just others that are unloving, but it's you, it's me that's also unloving, that's when you get the love of God in Christ Jesus because it comes by grace. Just like Jesus is love, and love is all that Jesus is in 1 Corinthians 13, here's what we need to say is the opposite. Are you ready for this? If we could write a passage about love is and Jesus is, here's what we'd say about us. Excuse the grammar. I is. You is. We is. Unloving. I is, you is, we is unloving. We're not love, are we, naturally? because our fallen hearts don't produce the fruit of love. Our fallen hearts produce the fruit of opposite to love. And what is the opposite of love in our world? It's sin. We've not loved God as we should. We've not loved others as we could. We are sinners. We are unlovers. And friends, this is the place of grace. Admitting that you're wrong. We live in a world where we cannot admit we're wrong anymore. Like, I've just seen that the dial has turned up on how right I am all the time. Whether it be social media or in actual conversations, I've witnessed. We, we have come to a place where we cannot possibly admit I'm wrong anymore. And I wondered how we got there. But admitting you're wrong is the place of grace. And I have no desire to be in any other place. Do you? Than the place of grace? And if that's you, and I can admit this very easily, readily, here's a trustworthy saying we confess together. I'm often wrong. I'm always weak and I'm always welcome with Christ. For God gives grace to who? Peter writes. We saw this earlier this year. Who does God give grace to? The prideful? The ones who are right all the time? Does God give grace to the ones who have, have got it worked out? They, they, they've, really, they've done their research. They've got it all worked out. Does God give grace to the ones who are right all the time? Negative ghostwriter. God gives grace to the humble God gives grace to the humble. Christ is the lover of our sinful soul, our sinful life. He did not sin, but he loved perfectly and then died in the place of perfect people out of love. 
And it's only then when we join in with Jesus and abide with Jesus, being a branch on the vine of Jesus, can we produce the fruit of the Spirit that is the love of Jesus. And this happens by grace, which means the only way you can come is to receive the love of God with the empty hands of faith. To say, I do have nothing because I have been unloving, but I get to come by grace to the one who gives love, forgiveness, and then fruit. Fruit. Have you received the love of God? In a world of disagreement, and I want to say again, disagreement is healthy, especially in a church, but here's a danger, friends. Disagreement has a cousin And disagreement's cousin is not far away. Disagreement's cousin is division. The Bible shows us disagreement can be healthy, but like we saw last week, Philippians 4, two women. Paul says, he doesn't say, I want them to agree in everything. You don't have to agree in everything, but he does say, I want you to agree in the Lord. Because where disagreement turns to division, that's when you see people who agree in the Lord saying, can't agree in the Lord, and we just repel from one another. A danger when people won't agree in the Lord is they won't find unity in Christ. See, we don't relate to one another because, you know, I just like country things and you like country things. That would be a a terrible church because we'd be very small and we wouldn't be loving to those who don't like country things. We don't relate to each other because of my particular status, be it medical status in society, be it the books I read. We do not relate to any other way. We don't find unity in those things. In fact, we will soon find division in those things if that's where you want to find relating. We relate to one another in Christ. That's our unity. To find unity in any other place is to actually find division. Friends, it is unremarkable to love someone who agrees with you. That is completely unremarkable. No one should be amazed by that. Wow, you agree with me. I love you. That is unremarkable. Anyone can do that and it's not out of this world. Yet what is out of this world is to love someone who disagrees with you. And in our world of outrage... That is positively only possible by supernatural means. It's the fruit of the spirit of love to others when in disagreement. When in a time that personal preferences are not met, we meet in disagreement, but we don't leave. We love. We leave relationships too easily. We leave friends who have fought for us. We leave and and we get used to leaving like it's our default position. But love says, with all that is between us, love says, I'm staying. And just how do we know that that's what love says? Because when we didn't just disagree with God, our maker, when Romans 5 says we were his enemies, we didn't live with him as Lord, we didn't like him, we didn't love him, he came to us to relate, to love, and love said, I'm staying on the cross. And his love says to you and me, after, by the way, countless times, how many times have we uh, gone our own way? 
How many times has God need to forgive us? Seven times? 77 times? 70 times 7 times, depending on the translation? How many times? Point is, how many times have we let him down and his love says, I'm still staying? Friends, let's love one another. Even when we can think we can come up with reasons not to. Because Jesus gives us all the reasons to love by his fruit. Let's love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as the psalmist sings repeatedly from Psalm 136, your steadfast love endures forever. We confess that we would be gone as without your love, but God, you've loved us in the Lord Jesus, laying his life down for us. And then, Father, then you sent your spirit with your son. You've given us your spirit-breathed word, your spirit dwells in us. And now we ask, help us to produce the fruit of your spirit, starting with the fruit of love. This is our prayer. By faith, by grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.